think it has changed? Do you feel like your relationship with Jesus has been a bit rollercoaster?
as we walk through this together, you'll notice that uh, at the beginning, the first three verses are really just setting us up for a couple of trials that we're going to see here. We're going to see two trials. We're going to see the setup in these first two verses here. First, we look at verses 53 and 55. If you look at verse 53 again, it says, And they led, to G- they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Remember, Jesus had just been with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when a, a crowd of men, including Roman soldiers, those sent by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, this is the group known as the Sanhedrin. Okay? And so they had sent this, this intimidating crowd to come and to arrest Jesus. And now this crowd had taken Jesus along with their swords and clubs. They had taken Jesus to the spot where the high priest lived. And verse 53 says they led Jesus to the high priest. They all came together. Verse 55 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. See, this is, this is the setup for Jesus' trial. And one thing we notice right away before we even get to this trial for Jesus is that he's set up to fail. That they already had their minds made up before any sort of trial even happened. And the way that this trial comes about is not the way a trial was supposed to come about. This is happening sometime in the middle of the night. This is not happening in the normal place where trials would take place. Very clear that they're just trying to push this through and make it happen fast. And then we see another trial being set up. That's Peter's trial, verse 54. (coughs) Excuse me, that sounds bad. Um, Haven't heard it through a microphone yet. Um, Don't touch this thing. Uh, Verse 54, (coughs) and it says this, And Peter had followed him, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. <coughs> Excuse me. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. See Peter's trial being set up here. His trial is going to be a little less formal even than Jesus' trial. He's sitting amongst some guards, warming himself at the fire. And one thing that's very clear already at this point is that Peter's pretty fickle, right? We've seen Peter act very confident, but proven to be very weak. Oh, Jesus, I won't deny you. Oh, yeah, I can be with you, Jesus. I'm not going to fall away. But then he can't even stay awake to pray, right? We've seen Jesus say, I won't, I won't deny you even if I have to die with you. I'm not going to flee, Jesus. Even if all the others flee, I won't flee. But verse 50, just a few verses before, tells us that all left him and fled. But Peter's fickle because maybe, maybe he didn't flee as far as some of the others fled because verse 54 says that he followed from a distance. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus, but he was still curious or something drove him to still follow at a distance. And so Peter's following Jesus at a distance and he tries now in verse 54 to warm himself near the fire with the guards trying to blend in with the crowd. And so we see two trials being set up. Jesus before the Sanhedrin and Peter before a crowd. Let's look at Jesus' trial first. 
the Jesus trial first, it starts out with false testimonies, right? Verses 56 to 59 say this. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Right? And so we already knew their minds were made up. They want to see Jesus condemned to death, and so they're just seeking out evidence, and they get a little bit of testimony, but none of it agrees. Most of it's false. But then we get to a true testimony in verses 60 to 62. These are some pivotal verses. We don't want to slow, we don't want to go too quickly through this. Look at verse 60 and 61. In verse 60 and 61 we read this. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, listen to this question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, the Son of the Blessed would have been another way of saying the exact same thing as Son of God. And so this question that's being asked here by the high priest is a very, very dangerous question. Are you the Christ? He's asking Jesus, is this what you're claiming? Are you claiming to be the Christ, the, the Messiah, and the Son of God? Now, we know that this is true about Jesus because right away in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we're told this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, right? So we know, Mark lets us know, as readers of his gospel, this is what Mark's gospel is all about. It's about the identity of Jesus. This is who he is. But so far as we've gone through the gospel of Mark, none of the characters have really gotten this yet. And if they get close to getting it, Jesus tells them to be quiet. You remember that? Remember that? Anytime, anytime any of even if it's demons... Right? They're getting close to understanding who Jesus really is, his true identity, not only as the Messiah, but also as the Son of God. And when somebody starts to get it, Jesus tells them, be quiet. Right? Be quiet. Don't let this be known. Because the reason, remember, that he told them to be quiet is they didn't understand the connection between who he was and what he came to do. They couldn't understand that yet. They didn't understand that the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah and the Messiah that they hoped for were all fulfilled in one person, and that was Jesus. And this person is actually the Son of God. But now, but now, His time has come. The time for Jesus to suffer and to die, to save His people by bearing their sins and suffering the Father's wrath on their behalf, that time has come. And so now... Now Jesus will no longer command silence. But he's asked a very direct question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus does not keep silent, but he answers in verse 62. I am. And then says a little bit more. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, I am. Answering that question, are you the Christ, are you the Son of God, are you the Messiah and the Son of God? People had this understanding of the Messiah and the Son of God, but they didn't know they would be fulfilled in one person. They didn't get that. And this person, this high priest is asking Jesus, is that you? Are you the Christ and the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And then he goes even further, gets very bold, and he quotes to them really from two different Old Testament passages Passages that were filled with all sorts of hope and longing for the Jewish people. And Jesus declares the fulfillment of both of these passages. And did you see them? Psalm 110 verse 1 says this. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, says to my Lord, this is a reference to the coming Messiah, Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says that one's about me. Saw Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, this prophecy about this coming Son of Man. Jesus says, that's about me too. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7. And Jesus is repeating part of this here in, in Mark 14, 62. In Daniel 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. All of the prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, the one who is to come. I am him and I am the Son of God. This is a bold proclamation by Jesus here in verse 62. He's saying all that you've been longing for throughout the Old Testament, the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah, that's me. The one who sits at the right hand of God, that's me. The Son of Man who was given dominion and glory and power, that is me. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the Son of God. It is not a secret anymore. And this is the true testimony that Jesus gives here at his trial in verse 62. And this is good news. This is such good news. So I wanted to preach this today because... Because this is, this is a pivotal passage in the Gospel of Mark about who Jesus is. That's what we've been waiting for. And now Jesus lets it be known, this is who I am. And you know that this is a bold statement because of the reaction that it receives in verses 63 to 65. And Jesus knows this is where it's going to lead. Look at verses 63 to 65. And the high priest tore his garments and said... What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The charge was 
blasphemy because that's what it would sound like to a Jewish person who believed there was only one God. There is only one God. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus reveals himself here as the Son of God. And they cry out blasphemy and they condemn him to death and mock him, begin to spit on him. We wonder, how's this going to end? And Mark kind of leaves us hanging there. We'll have to get back to that next week because Mark now takes us to a totally different scene. Mark takes us to the second trial that we see here in this passage. And that's the trial that Peter will face. And Peter has a testimony as well. It's not a good one. Look at verses 66 to 71. In verses 66 to 71, we read this. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, number one. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. That's one crow. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, number two, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know. This is number three. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter's testimony makes it very clear he does not want to be associated with Jesus. In the midst of the threat standing right in front of him, in the midst of opposition, he decides to take the safe route, what he thinks is the safe route, and, and deny Jesus. I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, it's not, it wasn't me. must have been some other guy. Maybe a guy that looked like me. What, but, but I'm not with Jesus. I don't even know him. We know that Peter's testimony wasn't true. And it's very clear to see that Peter has failed at his trial. At his trial, Jesus gave a very true testimony. And here at Peter's trial, Peter gives a false testimony. He failed at his trial. And Peter knows it right away. Look at verse 72. You see the verdict here in verse 72. <clears throat> Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Did you see the end of verse 72? And he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. In that, I think what we see is a little glimpse of Peter's repentant heart. Mark doesn't tell us much, but we get a fuller picture of Peter's repentance in John chapter 21. See the results of it all throughout the book of Acts. Peter failed. As I looked at this passage, I was trying to figure out, what does all this mean for us? How does this apply to us? Because the truth is, most of us, <clears throat> most of us will not be brought to testify about who Jesus is in front of a powerful court. I'm guessing that's the case. Maybe some could foresee a situation in which some of us might have to deal with that, but I'm not really foreseeing a situation in which we are going to be individually brought 
to testify about who Jesus is before a powerful court. But I think all of us will find ourselves at some point in a situation something like Peter's situation. An everyday situation in which the people that we're with, that we'd really like to blend in with, in which those people want to know where we stand with Jesus. And most of us, like Peter, will probably fail more than once. See, our problem is this. Our problem is we often fail to give a true testimony. Our problem is that our testimonies are spotted with sin and unfaithfulness. Our problem is that we, like Peter, are fickle followers in desperate need of forgiveness because we will one day stand trial before the just and holy and righteous God who created us. In light of that, we have two needs. One is this. We need to hear and believe the true testimony of who Jesus is. Did you hear what Jesus said about who he is in verse 62? Do you believe that? And then we need to trust in him, especially when our own testimony is spotted with our unfaithfulness. We, like Peter, need a Savior. We're guilty. Right? We're guilty. And we know that our own testimony won't save us. If you put us on a stand before the holy and righteous God, we don't stand a chance. And so it seems kind of hopeless, but it's not. There is hope. And you wonder how? I mean, how, how, listen, how do clearly guilty people with all sorts of evidence stacked against us, how do clearly guilty people like us stand before a perfectly just judge and not get condemned? How does that work? A perfectly just judge who has all of the evidence which very clearly proves us to be guilty, how do we stand before him and not be condemned? Turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, which is where we'll end today. The book of 1 John, almost at the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you haven't memorized these verses, that might be a good idea. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what we're shooting for. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that if anyone does sin, if anyone in here can relate to Peter and say, that's me, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm a little bit fickle. I'm pretty inconsistent in my obedience and commitment to him. I haven't always stood up for him when I've had opportunity to do so. 
If anybody can relate to Peter in that way, if anyone does sin, it says in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate. This is good news. That word advocate simply means one who pleads another's cause before a judge. Someone who pleads, a counsel for defense, a legal assistant. Remember, when we come to court before God Almighty, we come guilty And we can't defend ourselves, but thanks be to God, He has given us a defense attorney. He has given us an advocate who will speak on our behalf. And it says right here, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And He is righteous. And He has been put on our team to stand in our place as our defense attorney before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's more than just the defense attorney. He will even take on our guilty record and plead with the judge for our acquittal, based not on our record, but on his own spotless record. That's what it means in the next verse when it says he is the propitiation for our sin. A propitiation is one. We talked about that as Jesus struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was recognizing that what he was coming to do was to bear the wrath of the Father. And so he asked the Father if this cup, which is the symbol of God's wrath, could pass from him. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he willingly submitted to what we're going to see coming in the coming weeks, the coming verses. Jesus came to be our propitiation. There will be punishment for sin, but Jesus came to take that in our place. And so the testimony that saves us is not our own story of what we've done. It's the testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Earlier in the worship service, I so wanted to be out here with you singing this song, called Before the Throne of God Above. It's new maybe to many of us here, but I heard people singing, um, which is good. It was a song written originally in 1863, and originally, you know what the song was called? The Advocate, which they originally called that song. Such a fitting song to sing today because we're so much like Peter. And I'm so thankful that when we stand trial before the judge, before the throne of God above, that I have a strong and perfect plea. Because I stand with a great high priest. Not, not the high priest that Jesus went on trial before here in Mark 14, but we have a great high priest, Jesus himself, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's good news. Isn't it? Because we're like Peter. In this passage in Mark 14 and weeping. Peter weeping in despair because he knows that he has failed. And so have we. And so we've got a couple of choices. You know that you've failed, right? You know that you've failed. There's a couple of options for us. One option is that we can weep and despair forever. 
we can look at our own sin. And some of you are tempted in this way. You look at your own sin. Sin from the recent past. Sin that you're still dealing with now. Sin from your distant past. Stuff that you're ashamed of. The ugly stuff that most people don't know about. And when you look at your sin, you despair. You dwell and you just stay there. And you know who enjoys that? Satan enjoys that. But there's another way. And that is that we can, like Peter, weep and repent. And God enjoys that. That we can weep. We can be broken over our sin, but rather than dwelling in it and sitting and just staring at it, that we can... We can, we can look in a different direction and recognize that our sin has been paid for in full by our advocate, by the one who was a propitiation for us. And so you sang also this verse in that song. And there have been many times where I've sat down in my office in counseling with people as they're struggling with their own sin. Their faith is in Jesus, but they just can't seem to get over their sin, and they're despairing, and I've shared these words with them. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. That's who we worship. That's who we must trust. You are a sinner, and you will live the rest of your life in your sin and will one day bear eternal punishment for your sin if you do not trust in that Savior who is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is your advocate. And He is the propitiation for your sins if you would only trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is so powerful. Um, But it's powerful because it reveals to us who You are. That's what we know that we need above all else. So many things that, 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 that occupy our minds and our hearts throughout the week, but every week we need to come back together here. And we need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior of all who trust in Him to the end. Even though there might be moments of, of fickleness, of, of lack of commitment, of inconsistency. God, we are so thankful that it's not our own testimony, our own record that we bring before you, but that our advocate, Jesus Christ, puts before the throne his own spotless record in our place. And God, we are so thankful. So thankful for the work that Christ has done for us, the the work that we're about to see as we go into the season of remembering what he did. 
we continue on in the Gospel of Mark next week and we see another step closer to the cross. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us the gift of your Son. You are good and a sovereign, a just and a merciful God. And we worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.